0: by law students for past present and future law students bringing you information to help your career this is the law school show with Rishi and Chris hey guys hope all of you are doing well we wanted to give you a quick update for this week. Our actual episode will be launching later this week. Probably uh, Friday. Probably Friday. So before we get into that, Chris, how you doing? Man, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Raish? Good, man, good. So what do we have today? I don't know. I wasn't really involved <laughs> in this in any big way, but uh, you certainly were. So that's fantastic for all the rest of us involved. Um, what I do know is that it is the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta this yeah, year. Exactly. So something went on um, involved with that. What was it? So, uh, University of Ottawa back in October uh, put on this uh, session called a conversation on the state of rule of law in Canada in celebration of the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. So it was like a panel discussion. Exactly, and we had some fantastic members on the panel. It was mm-hmm. well, we had Robert uh, Robert Walsh, uh, Honorable Justice Pachaco, Urban Kotler, as well as Dean Natalie De Rosier. Okay. from the University of Ottawa. And it was moderated by uh, Errol Mendez, correct? Exactly. Professor Errol Mendez was moderating the session. So with all of you, what we wanted to do is share the snippets, the audio snippets in our podcast. The actual video for the session is also available on our YouTube channel, which you can access by going to youtube.thelawschoolshow.com. That's it. Dig in and uh, next episode proper coming out Friday. Perfect. Thanks so much.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm uh, so delighted to see you all here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Charisma Mathen, and I am on faculty here at the University of Ottawa, and this year I have the distinct pleasure of being the head of the public law group. Uh, about five years ago now, uh, Adam Dodick, Peter Oliver, er- Errol Mendez, and... I got together and decided to put together a group representing the public law faculty because we are of the opinion that we have the broadest and deepest cohort of public law scholars in Canada and we wanted to showcase that. And so we host events of both general and specialised interest uh, throughout the year in the public law area. Our flagship event is our Emerging Issues Conference, which is traditionally held in the spring, and we're very pleased to announce this year, 2015, will be our fifth annual conference. The conference this year will address two themes, one on privacy, surveillance, and data, and a second one on constitutional architecture. And we are very happy that former Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci has agreed to provide the keynote address and you can find information uh, about the conference and including the call for papers um, just outside this room. A running theme for the Public Law Group this year is the anniversary of the Magna Carta. And we thought that one issue that would particularly benefit from discussion concerns the current state of the rule of law. So let me now introduce our moderator for tonight's panel, Professor Errol Mendez. Professor Mendez is a full professor here in the Faculty of Law with broad specializations in constitutional law, human rights, international human rights, and the law of business associations. He is a frequent media commentator, regularly providing advice uh, to the government. And he's a critical part of the public law group, and he contributed enormously to getting tonight's panel together, and I'd like to thank him personally for that. And so without further ado, uh, let me turn the proceedings over to him.
2: I'm going to start off with um a question and the answer I got when I asked students in very different classes in the decades of um, teaching that I've done is uh, the question I asked was how how long do you think it took to get our present legal system together, and sometimes people say well you know since Confederation 145 46 47 years some actually give a better answer and say well maybe before that to the time when you had a responsible government in the 1850s, uh, and some even go back further and say when we first had representative government. But I think a more fulsome answer would be it actually started in 1215. And it started in, 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 in a place called Runnymede in England where uh, King John was very worried that he would soon be overthrown, and he agreed to meet with the barons of the land to say to try and save his monarchy. And so eventually, he was forced to agree to a whole bunch of um, rights, which essentially was really only concerning the barons. But there was one provision, which essentially started off what many people regard as the foundational systems of our legal system in England, in America, and in Canada. And not many people actually know what actually the Magna Carta said in this regard. So I'm going to read it out. And for those of you who've taken um, a lot of your first year property classes will probably know what some of these terms mean. And you can be tested afterwards in each of your classes as to Mm -hmm. what you think it means. So here's here's the most important provision in the Magna Carta. It's paragraph 29. And it says as follows. No freeman shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased, not deceased, deceased, of any freehold, or liberties, or free custom, or outlawed, or banished, or in any other way destroyed, no will we go upon him, no send upon him, except by the legal judgment of his peers, by the law of the land. To no one will we sell, to no one will we deny, or delay right or justice and believe it or not those words were the beginning in some people's view of our entire legal system Um, many people have interpreted those actual words to mean that nobody is above the law as the foundational principle of the rule of law but others have taken those words and said no it means a lot more than that and tonight we're going to see how we can tease out from those words which set out the foundations of our legal system, what exactly some of those words mean. And for that, we've got a stellar cast. We've got individuals who represent almost every aspect of the foundational institutions of our democracy. I'm going to read them all out now, but um, I won't give it when they come up to talk on each of their their topics. Starting with Rob Walsh. Um, Rob, um, after doing his legal studies at at the University of British Columbia, was called to the bar. I'm not going to give dates because I don't want anyone to age age them or us. (laughs) Um, We're all young. Um, He spent 12 years in private practice and became firstly a legislative counsel in, in the Manitoba Justice Department. He was then appointed general legislative counsel to the House of Commons, and ultimately he was appointed law clerk and parliamentary counsel. And here's the interesting part, the 12th since Confederation with responsibility for both Legislative Council and Legal Council Services. No doubt you've seen him a lot um, in, in some of the most challenging times, including during the time when uh, Parliament was rocked by the allegations of the transfer of detainees to torture. And maybe we can uh, talk about some of the issues that came up in that context. Um, next is my friend and former colleague, David Pachaco, who was a professor, a full professor of the common law section here, who is now a judge on the Ontario Court of Justice. Um, He is one of the top experts um, in the country in the law of evidence, criminal law, and trust. Um, He has worked as an assistant uh, crown attorney, a defense counsel, and in, in 2005, he was nominated to receive an honorary doctorate from Laurentian University. Uh, my, my next friend on the, on the, on the <laughs> roster is Dean Natalie Derosia, And Natalie, I won't tell it, people how long you and I have known each other. Um, um, she has served as general counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And I'm throwing in um, a twist on her bio. She likes very complex leadership positions. Um, prior to appointment to the CCLA, she was interim vice presidents Uh, Governance for the University of Ottawa, Dean of the Civil Law Section. She does get tired of being Dean, do you? Um, President of the Law Commission of Canada. Uh, Was in private practice um, um, in Montreal and uh, in Ontario, London, Ontario. Uh, She has served as President of the Federation of Social Sciences and Humanities. Uh, She was the President of the Law Deans, President of the Law Associations of, of Law Teachers, Um, and Associate de Juriste d'Expression Francaise d'Ontario. She has received many honors, including the Order of Canada. Urban Kotlin is presently uh, the MP for Mount Royal. He has served as Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada from 2003 to 2006. He was elected to the House of Commons in a by-election in November 1999 and won, this is really interesting, by a vote of 92% of the votes cast. On par with Saddam Hussein, this is great. (laughs) Um, um, He was a professor of law at McGill University and a director of its Human Rights Center there. He has been a visiting professor around the world, including at the Woodrow Wilson Fellow um, at Yale Law School, and he too has also received the Order of Canada. You know, given your wide background (laughs) in terms of uh, civil society, and and the fact that you witness firsthand um, the challenges to the rule of law, for example, in the G20 uh, meetings. What do you see is the systemic barriers to the, the modern notion of the rule of law in Canada?
3: Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Ça fait toujours grand plaisir, évidemment, de discuter avec vous des grands enjeux de notre société. So if I think 800 years ago, uh, Magna Carta, uh, I think we have 800 years more to go to really fully realize the, the, the promise of the rule of law. And let me say, uh, uh, to start, that I view the rule of law not just as uh, process-driven, but s- certainly as an ethos of empowerment of de- democratic processes as good governance. So it's not only about uh, being following the rules, but it's actually embracing the rules, celebrating the way in which uh, uh, constraints on power make us better, make us a better society and a more uh, just one. So uh, if you read uh, Laura, Tom Bigham, uh you say the rule of law is no one's above the law, all are equal in front of the law, there must be access to law, and law, it's about law, not about arbitrariness. And in my view, on all four crowns, we still have lots of work to do. And some of the systemic problems, and I, I would, uh, part company may be with, uh, 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 with respect with Judge uh, Pachocco when he said, oh, I think I have a more important role now than I had as an academic. But in a way, I would say, and it's probably because I returned to academia, I think documenting the gap between uh, uh, what the law promises and what the law delivers is essential to pursuing the rule of law. If you're, if you're going to blind yourself and just say, oh well, everything's good and we're just following the rules, I think there is a, a, a role in all of civil society to fully embrace that there's a responsibility to denounce when there's a gap and to do something about it. So um, systemic problems with achieving the rule of law. Number one, lack of accountability. I think we have to move beyond the next phase of the rule of law. It's not simply to say, oh, we're, we're checking all the boxes, we passed all, the, all of the, the processes necessary, but we have instituted inst- uh, and we have created institutions that make it happen that allow us to, that internalize the rule of law, that ensures that there's accountability for police officers, for security officers, for CBSA, for the Canadian Border Service. We don't have it. No. And it, uh, you know, the way in which we will, we have elections law, electoral laws that have sufficient uh, 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 strength and sufficient accountability so they cannot be ignored. So in a way, you, we have to move from the rules to the institutions that make it happen We cannot tolerate the gap. Second point is if we're gonna say no one's above the law and second, all are equal in front of the law, well, I think it's pretty hard to say that in a more and more unequal society. So the problem of the rule of law in an unequal society becomes much more uh, important. And there must be access to law. Well, if there's a problem of access to justice, by definition, we are questioning whether indeed we're fully in in a rule of law uh, Uh, And finally, let me just uh, end on the way in which a rule of law was also about even the good processes, ensuring that there's good democratic processes. So my my view would be big omnibus bills are not representative of the rule of law either. And so I think the way in which we may have gone to a system where we're no longer embracing the promise of the ruling, the, the rule of law, we're sipping, ticking the boxes and being satisfied that by and large, we're better than others. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Natalie. Um, again, I'm gonna, based on what you've just said, ask you to think about some issues which we can come back in the second round. Um, and it goes back to actually the, the political and power makeup of the original Magna Carta. As I said, the, the Magna Carta was born essentially not because King John wanted there to be a a foundational principle of the rule of law. Absolutely not. He was being threatened with his throne being overthrown by the barons. And and this guy was ruthless. He was basically stealing the barons' wives' children and basically considering himself above the law. And it's only when the barons decided to take him on and get together. And finally, they actually even took over London at one point to say to him, your time is almost up he relented and came up with the Magna Carta. Given that history, Mm -hmm. uh, Natalie, given what you just said, that a lot of the problems of the rule of law lies with this inequality of power Mm -hmm. and inequality of resources in our society, how on earth can civil society be able to bridge that gap? Mm -hmm. Maybe you have an answer. Many people don't, myself included, but maybe you will have an answer to that. So think about that as we go to the second round. Natalie, do you want to go to the question I asked you?
3: Yeah, so your question was about how do you do the rule of law in an unequal world? And uh, in my view, it's the the rule of law in that context demands of the powerful that they empower the powerless and they uh, tell the indifferent that it matters. So I think uh, the powerful, and I'm talking more broadly about all power, all exercise of power, not just the exercise by by government uh, or uh, by the the state in its multiple forms, but even, you know, Dean's office as well, you know. Uh, You should value the constraints uh, that are put upon the exercise of power. So if there's a, you should value them in a way that empowers the powerless. That you want to give, you know, empower them to question your, 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 uh, your decisions and your because that's what the more constraints, the more and and you have to believe that that's what gives you uh, more legitimacy. And I think that's the message of the rule of law. is always, you know, power corrupts. Big power corrupts more. And therefore, you should. Uh, uh, protect uh, the exercise of power by imposing on it lots of restraints. So you welcome restraints, you cherish oversight, you want it, you want it badly, and then you obviously want this to be uh, shared and empower uh, and and ensure that the powerless in our society have access to the mechanism to be heard, not to be uh, and to be heard uh, meaningfully in a way that uh, they can be. Influence, influential in the process. And you also have to convince everyone, uh, the indifferent, the ones that are not particularly in that dilemma of power, powerlessness in, in certain circumstances, that indeed, it does matter. It does matter, they have a responsibility not to abandon uh, and to continue to want power to be exercised in a controlled fashion uh, with uh, welcoming restraints. And even if that cost a little, Maybe that cost delay, that costs some sort of wrangling. Uh, it may, rule of law may not be always uh, uh, synonymous with efficiency. Having said that, I think I would just finish on this, is that time is an interesting factor here. Uh, at the CCLA, we used to worry a lot that, you know, uh, accountability too late is just as bad as no accountability. Uh, So there has to be a mechanism of accountability that is in real time that makes uh, the the possibility of experiencing that indeed uh, we are moving toward uh, a rule of law uh, mechanism, not just in a dream and then future life, but actually uh, in in a way that it can materialize uh, really so people don't give up and don't internalize the despair and the abandonment.
2: Just a very quick supplementary. Um, As I said, that Magna Carta was actually a result of civil disobedience by the barons. What's your view on civil disobedience?
3: Well, uh, uh, civil disobedience is a political uh, gesture, and and in a way, law is there to discipline politics. That's the that's what. uh, If you choose to be uh, on. uh, on, on if you d- decide to make your your fight one that is uh, of, of civil disobedience, then you have chosen to enter the political realm and to tell the powerful that they have lost the moral authority. So, uh, now, my own view is I don't think it, the, the, there is a principle of proportionality that ought to be uh, observed all the time. There's no, you know, there's no, um, the the powerful, the government could decide, and certainly I think in the context of sentencing, in the context of recognizing the importance of expressing dissent, of continuing to express dissent, of making it count, uh, you cannot treat dissenters worse uh, than than other people, and that sometimes happens, where there are people that have uh, choose civil disobedience or uh, held out as being anarchist and outside of the boundaries of, of things. So I think we have to be careful. And I think I do think that rule of law does demand the exercise of proportionality uh, in the, in both sentencing and, and the exercise of power.
2: Thanks, Natalie. Uh, Owen, as one of Canada's, um, and I'm not saying this to flatter you, one of the greatest um, uh, ministers of justice, uh, renowned all over the world from some of the work you've done, um, what do you see in your role as a former Minister of Justice are the two most fundamental principles that the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada, who has the the, the role at the same time, has to do to promote the rule of law in Canada.
4: Well, I recall uh, when I was sworn in as as Minister of Justice and then subjected to the proverbial uh, media scrum, Uh, which was basically the beginnings of a gotcha journalism uh, for ministers, before they could begin with their approach, I said that I I wanted to just uh, set forth um, my own uh, set of principles. And I began by saying that uh, I will (coughs) be governed by one overarching principle. I said, and that would be uh, the pursuit of justice. And within that, the promotion and protection of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as a centerpiece For the building of a just society and the promotion and protection of equality, for the building of a society that was not only just but one that was compassionate and humane. I must say, and I think we all bring our own identity to whatever uh, we do, that I was, at that point, hearing my own parents uh, speaking to me, Um, my father, who had told me that the pursuit of justice was equal to all the other commandments combined, and then. My mother saying to me when she heard my father saying this, that if you want to pursue justice, you have to understand, you have to feel the injustice about you. You have to go in and about your community and beyond and feel the injustice and combat the injustice. Otherwise, the pursuit of justice remains a theoretical construct. It was not unlike, and you know, I think I was fortunate that I was 30 years as a, a constitutional law professor and had the benefit of Frank Scott Um, one of Canada's great constitutional lawyers who taught me, who said that constitutional law was a a law for making laws. Uh, He called it the ultimate uh, rule of law. So two basic principles that came out of that from my parents and from uh, Frank Scott and teaching were the following. The first was what I called, and this is I saw as a governing principle, the notion of constitutionalism, human rights, and the rule of law that we had by reason of the Uh, advent of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which I said would be an organizing principle uh, for me, uh, we had in effect undergone in Canada, uh, Robert referred to 1982, uh, had undergone a legal revolution, which the late Chief Justice Antonio Lemaire uh, said was a a revolution uh, not unlike uh, the developments by Pasteur in science. Now, you might think that that was... (laughs) An over enthusiastic (laughs) uh, statement, but Claire Leroux Dubé said around the same time that as a result of the Charter, we had stretched the cords of liberty in Canada more in five years than the US Supreme Court had in 200. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Allowing uh, uh, for that, uh, as I say, an enthusiastic approach to the Charter, and I I do share a lot of of the approach of the Charter as a a Grundnorm uh, principle. I think we had to appreciate as a result of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that we had moved from being a parliamentary democracy to being a constitutional democracy. We had moved from the sovereignty of parliament to the sovereignty of the constitution. We had moved from the courts being arbiters of legal federalism, which they still remain, to being guarantors of human rights. And I walked in on this about the activism. Not because the courts sought to usurp that power, but because we, parliament, entrusted them with that power in the adoption of the constitutional act and the (coughs) uh, and its centerpiece the charter of rights and freedoms and individuals and groups now had a panoply of rights and remedies that they did not have before and an expansion of the justiciability issues that did not exist before you could not in pre charter law have standing to go before the court and seek to give equal access uh, to gays and, and lesbians uh, to civil marriage. S- simply was not a justiciable issue. There was no uh, standing in, in that uh, regard. And so uh, as a Minister of Justice and Attorney General in that regard, I'll, I'll close th- on this point, I felt that I had a responsibility to ensure that all laws that would be introduced would in fact comport with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In fact, it was an obligation under Section 4 of the Department of Justice Act and I sought to mainstream this uh, within cabinet, within uh, justice officials, etc., to create this as a kind of uh, organizing norm, a culture of governance, uh, you know, you were speaking about good governance, as a kind of culture of, of governance of which uh, Natalie uh, spoke of. Regrettably, regrettably, uh, I, fa- I have found since, and I don't like to be partisan, but I'm not saying anything here that I've not otherwise said before, I felt that the, Conservative government has introduced a series of legislation which is constitutionally suspect. Uh, one of the most important of them is in the field of criminal justice, not unsurprising because a law and order agenda was germane to the Conservative government, but Bill C-10. and This brings us into the whole question, both of good governance unparliamentary parliamentary uh, process and constitutionalism and the rule of law. Because in the bill c10 first of all you had nine pieces of legislation each of which deserved its own differentiated and distinguishable uh, oversight if you will by parliament so i'm not speaking here about you know government opposition all parliamentarians obligation to give legislation the proper uh, consideration but not only did you have nine bills wrapped in one but then time allocation which is a new term for closure to make it more sanitized, Uh, time allocation was introduced not only in the House, but introduced in committee. And so when this omnibus bill came to committee, we had a a kind of fascinating situation. I had proposed about 45 amendments uh, to the uh, Bill C-10. All of them were summarily defeated. But one of the bills, interestingly enough, one of the bills had been a private member's bill that I had proposed. Earlier, that was to give civil remedies to victims of terror. The government had included that because of civil society representation as part of their omnibus bill. So I proposed the Six Amendments, and the government summarily rejected the Six Amendments. I said, I'm only trying to improve your legislation. And the legislation that, in fact, if you will, civil society has asked that you include, summarily rejected. The same civil society groups then went back to the government and said, hey, you know, if you want that legislation, you need those six amendments. So they then brought back the six amendments and brought it back at report stage. And this is where procedure comes in. The Speaker then correctly said, you can't bring back at report stage, which you rejected, I don't want to get technical, rejected at committee stage. So as a result of it, it had to go back to the Senate, come back, etc. And at the end of the day, the six amendments that they uh, introduced for this uh, bill to give civil remedies to victims of terror, were the exact six Amendments that I had proposed without a change of comma that they had summarily rejected uh, earlier So that's what I'm saying, you know, the whole things can converge and and it's uh, regrettable when those things happen because when with this I close when you introduce constitutionally suspect legislation the result of it is you invite constitutional challenges and Bill C-10 is replete now with constitutional challenges whether it be with regard to mandatory minimums whether it be with regard to prison overcrowding whether it be regarded to pretrial a whole series uh, because it's, it's an omnibus bill so it's a lot of constitutionally suspect uh, provisions so it invites constitutional challenges it in fact uh, abuses resources, uh, both of government and the courts. It strains the legal uh, uh, process and, uh, and it breaches, in my view, the government's initial responsibility to comport with uh, the Charter of Rights and, and Freedom. So uh, that's my whole approach on that, just a parenthetical aside, on, but not so much on equality. Since I missed the first round, I'm just stealing a minute or two. Uh, <laughs> on the issue of, of equality, because that was such a foundational issue, as Minister of Justice in 2005, I proclaimed 2005 as the year of, of equality. Um, I have to say that uh, again, the government—and I remember uh, we used to have uh, conferences celebrating the Charter—and it's very uh, annually. Conservative government sort of almost ignores the Charter as if it's not there, and has even instructed its officials not to appear at conferences. That annually at uh, uh, the annual uh, commemoration of the Charter, but on the equality issue, that was fundamental with regard to bringing about the Civil Marriage Act. Without that, we could not have had a uh, civil marriage. There are other things in which equality is, uh, is fundamental, but I'll, I'll stop here. For me, the two grundnorm principles, therefore, were number one, promotion and protection of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms; number two the promotion and protection of equality, and where the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada has a distinguishable responsibility with respect to both, and it starts right at the beginning in cabinet, whereas the Attorney, attorney General, and you, you made that this point, uh, as an Attorney General, you have to give independent legal advice to the Crown, and that has to comport with uh, the Charter, etc.
2: Thank you, Owen. Um, Owen, I'm not going to ask you to to think about something because I know you probably have seven points. You always have seven perfect points on any issue, so I'm going to not going to ask you any
4: questions. I'm just gonna, so you know, my that. son says, "Dad, it's a new generation. After two points, we're gone. We're not there anymore." <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Owen, one of the things connected to everything we've heard so far is, um, especially given what happened in October, um, if we are if you like, I hate the word war, uh, war the war on terror, but if we are in a permanent law enforcement regime on the so-called terrorist uh, threat, um, what is the role of government? What's the role of the Department of Justice in terms of making sure all the issues that, that David has talked about, that Natalie has talked about in terms of proportionality, in terms of, of, of not overacting, not overreaching, Um, at the same time as uh, uh, the Minister of Security is now using a new term, not underacting either. So um, I know you're coming to to national security as being one of the principles on the rule of law, so maybe you can address it now.
4: Yeah, I, on the issue of of, of national security, I never felt that there was a necessary contradiction uh, between the protection of national security and the protection of, of human rights. They they intersect, they, uh, they're complementary, and I, I used the, the term, not it wasn't mine, it was uh, even first in, initiated by uh, Lloyd Axworthy, it was the notion of uh, human security as a kind of uh, generic principle. Uh, by that I mean on the matter of security and rights that there are two foundational principles, and this goes right into, let's say, the situation of, of uh, uh, terrorist threat and, and the like. The first is that, Uh, terrorism constitutes a threat to the security of democracy uh, like Canada and the rights of its individuals to life, liberty, and security of the person. Therefore in that context anti-terrorism law and policy can be seen as being uh, the obligation of government uh, to protect the security of a democracy and protect the life, liberty, and security of the person of its inhabitants as former Supreme Court Justices Uh, Frank Iacobucci and Louise Arbour said the Constitution is not a suicide pact. There is an obligation, you know, uh, to protect the security. At the same time, and this is the second and related principle, at the same time, the anti-terrorism law and policy must always comport with the rule of law, must always adhere to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Torture everywhere and always must be prohibited. Individuals and groups must never be singled out for differential and discriminatory treatment. And so a government has a responsibility with regard to the protection of democracy and the protection of its citizens from terrorist threats. (coughs) But in doing so, it must always comport, as I say, with the rule of law and the Constitution. That's why, interestingly enough, the first one of my first acts as Minister of Justice was to uh, recommend the establishment of the Commission of Inquiry to Meher Arar uh, at the time. This also became a, an interesting situation for me uh, personally. The Commission of Inquiry was established. I had acted, and Rob, maybe I should have consulted you on this at that point. I had acted as counsel to <coughs> Meher Arar when he was in a prison mm-hmm. in Syria after the illegal rendition from the US to Jordan. Syria, etc., and took up his case, and we organized a hearing on Parliament uh, to look in the whole situation. But then, having established the Commission of Inquiry, I was told I had to recuse myself because of my prior involvement with the Meher-Arar case, the result of which I was not in subsequently involved. And then I realized, if I was going to recuse myself on all issues that I had been involved in <laughs> as a human rights lawyer prior to becoming <laughs> Minister of Justice, jo- I wouldn't be able to discharge any responsibilities at all. Mm-hmm. Because whether it be on the issues of bringing war criminals to justice, whatever you wanted. I had had a, some sort of track record over the years, having come late to being the minister in my, in, you know, being in my 60s. So I figured, well, if I'm going to have to remove myself from everything that I'd been involved, so I then at the, after that happened, after I recused myself in Maharar, I said, OK, I'm now making it clear, I will not recuse myself anymore as Minister of Justice. Uh, either you trust me or don't on the issues that come before me that I will discharge uh, my responsibilities uh, and, uh, appropriately in accordance with the rule of law, etc. but I will not uh, any longer uh, rec- recuse myself. So that was on the, uh, the relationship with security and rights and the kind of personal aside, but some of the things we recommended at the time have still not happened, which was, uh, to use one example, establishing an all-party mm-hmm. uh, parliamentary a, committee, a kind of security and intelligence committee that would operate for purposes of oversight. We don't have that. And now we have a situation where the government is seeking more powers uh, when I think we need more oversight. And uh, this is something that we're going to have to work out uh, in the uh, you know, weeks ahead in this regard.
2: Thank you, Evan. Rob Walsh, um, because in some respects, um, the institution that you presided over or counsel was in some respect the, the legacy of the Magna Carta in terms of uh, the fact that Parliament was supposed to be, if you like, the, the, the restraint on absolute power. And given the fact that um, there is now a live discussion, it's going on right now, today actually, in terms of what on earth are we going to do with Dean Del Mastro? I don't know whether any of you have uh, been listening to that. There is a real tension between does the law in its full uh, panoply apply to Parliament, and if it doesn't, what is the relationship between Parliament and the rule of law?
5: Five minutes, you say? <laughs> um, as you mentioned earlier, I practiced law for a number of years, and like any lawyer, you, you're accustomed to working in a in a in a context of rules and formalisms, with a with a uh, well-defined outcome. I was in civil litigation, so you know when you go to a court, the judge will hear the case and make a decision, and you've got an outcome. And uh, as we used to say, justice, uh, if justice prevails, I'll appeal. But uh, <laughs> bottom line is, you have, rules, you have rules you can count on. But then I came into the parliamentary world. And yes, there's a book of rules. But I don't know how much you can rely on them. Because, of course, the members and the parties can decide what they're going to do from time to time as they see fit. But for me as a lawyer, the biggest encounter was the law—the conflict or the interface between law and politics. And what I had to learn was something I never heard of before, although I was almost 20 years a lawyer at that point, and that is the law of parliamentary privilege. I was new to the domain of parliamentary law, and we learned I learned about the law of parliamentary privilege. And without going into all of that in detail, let me just say that it is an area of law that I wish uh, more lawyers uh, were knowledgeable about. But it is, a, it is, as Erskine May, the sort of locus classicus of parliamentary law, said in his book that first came out in 1844, a kind of exemption from the application of the general law. Now, you might first think, well, rule of law certainly can't mean that there's some exemption from the application of the law. Well, of, well there is, and it's not unique to the parliament. I mean, you have parliamentary privilege. You have crown privilege. You have various other privileges. and. And, of course, when you become a lawyer, you'll be very grateful to know that you probably won't be called for jury duty because you're a lawyer. So you're lucky. (laughs) You won't have to sit on a jury. There are various exceptions or exemptions or qualifications to the law which can take categories of people out of the application of the law. So I just want to emphasize that to try and do some sensitivity to the notion of the rule of law as being something other than the rule of laws. Because that's what I came up against in, the, in Parliament. What happened was a, the committee of the House, typically exercising on behalf of the House, the House's function of holding the government to account, wanted information from the government as it's entitled to receive. And often it's the case, the government doesn't want to give that information to the committee. And one of the responses of a legal nature by the uh, department uh, and in, at times pleading they had been so advised by the Department of Justice, was that they couldn't provide that information to the committee because to do so would be in violation of the Privacy Act. That the information in question was uh, was uh, uh, prohibited from disclosure uh, by virtue of the Privacy Act. I then, it got tiresome after a while saying the same thing over and over again, I then would be brought in to say the Privacy Act does not apply to the House or its committees, except in such manner as the House or its committees might choose to cause it to apply, okay? You don't invoke a statute so as to frustrate or deny to the House or its committees their constitutional function, and the function here was to hold the government to account. Now, in the, in the uh, seven years of minority government, from 2004 to 2011, more between 206 and 211, but certainly by virtue of a minority parliament, you had committees where the majority were opposition members, and so committees could be more uh, muscular, as it were, in discharging the function of holding the government to account. Since the return of majority government, some of you may have noticed, there isn't much happening in committees, because the prevailing uh, majority, which is on the government side, has control of committees, and uh, those kinds of things won't happen. Uh, but be that as it may, that's the parliamentary system. But the, the, I encountered lawyers in the Department of Justice, typically, but it, it was a few occasions when I wasn't a Department of Justice lawyer who would privately, to me, to be saying, how can a committee be doing this? How can a committee be doing that? This is lawlessness. I mean, don't we have rule of law? I, of course we have rule of law. But I had to stop and think, oh, what is that? Oh, I vaguely recall. What it was. Hmm. But rule of law is not the rule of laws. The rule of law is a number of, of dimensions to it. Of course, the rule of law includes having an independent judiciary, of course. But then the issues or the actions of a House or its committees is not subject to judicial review. So in a sense, this is an area of law. But as courts have said as far back as 1704, parliamentary privilege is part of the law of the land. It is part of our system of laws. And even though it offers latitude to the House, and in particular its committees, to operate in uh, disregard of laws that might otherwise apply. Nonetheless, that's part of our system of laws. And yes, as the Supreme Court of Canada in affirmed in 2005, the House has the ability to be both judge and jury about the application of a law to itself. And it can choose to disregard some laws if, in regard to its proceedings, if that's what it wishes to do. And in my view, and this is the point I really want to make, and it's almost a political message, or a political science message, I suppose, is that We need to have parliamentary privilege and its various tenets so that our democracy can play itself out between elections. Now, we are, as the court has said, a constitutional democracy. We are governed by the law, of course we are, and the rule of law is important. Matter of fact, the Constitution puts it right up there with God. You read the recital to the Constitution Act 1982? the, uh, what is it, the respect for God? Supremacy of God and the rule of law. Well, in some parts of this world, as we're now hearing much about, the supremacy of God seems to have priority over the rule of law. Uh, But then again, God's law is the rule of law, I suppose. But fortunately here, we put the rule of law in a high regard, as we must, okay? I'm not sure what supremacy of God means in that context, but I'll leave that alone, unless there's a theologian in the room. But uh, rule of law is important that we can all have confidence in our system but the parliamentary privilege is an area of law which is outside that so that our democratic politics can play itself out fully. And the one privilege I'm sure you've all heard about is the freedom of speech in the House. Now, normally if someone says something nasty about someone else, that other person will have a, probably have the right to sue in, uh, in court and uh, recover uh, damages from the, by order of the court in compensation for the injury or damages done by the, the, the nasty statement. No, that can happen in the House. Uh, somebody could you could find yourself being spoken to very unkindly and there isn't anything you can do about it yeah that may seem unjust where's the rule of law on that because the rule of law and our system of laws has recognized that there needs to be a free and open debate in the House of Commons and so also in a more specific case coming up soon uh, next spring it might happen I don't know if it will but it could conceivably in the trial of Senator Duffy now, this is where the law and politics can come right face to face. It could be that the, the accused wants to call the prime minister as a witness. Well, law uh, of parliament and your privilege would say that members of parliament are not liable to being subpoenaed to a court during a session of parliament. Now, the member of parliament in this case happens to be the member from Calgary Southwest, who currently, although he may not then, who currently holds the post of prime minister. Um, of course, there may be political considerations coming into his decision about whether he's available to the court, but it also has the implications, in my view, that if the accused does not have the benefit of testimony from that uh, witness, uh, whether he n- can't argue that he's being denied a fair trial, and so the charges against him would have to be dropped. Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of detail, the de- devil in the details, and one would have to look at the particular issues in respect of which the, uh, the prime minister's testimony was sought, but the point is there's an interface there I'm not so sure, frankly, that parliamentary privilege will apply in that case, because generally speaking, parliamentary privilege is no protection against criminal law. It doesn't apply in criminal cases, which is to say that a member of parliament could be charged with a criminal offense and would have to face those charges, and he can't plead parliamentary privilege to in any way uh, avoid those charges or avoid a trial on those charges. But a person being called as a witness, the courts made it very clear, including the Ontario Court of Appeal here, that a member of parliament cannot be sub- sub- subpoenaed to court as a witness, And uh, does that include being subpoenaed as a witness in a criminal case? I'm not sure. But in any event, the interface in law and politics is a a very important interface. And we have tonight with us, and maybe we'll hear more from from Mr. Cotler, as a very distinguished member of parliament a very experienced member of parliament and, of course, a very experienced and knowledgeable lawyer in his own right. So this interface in law and politics, I personally found to be a very, very tricky uh, interface to where does the law let up and where does politics rightly take over? and what is the interface between the two, given such concepts as the rule of law, right up there with God in our constitutional system.
2: Thank you, Rob. Uh, again, from your answers, um, you've basically said that the rule of law has to fit in to the parliamentary framework of parliamentary privilege and responsible government. Something which I want you to think about in our second round is that it, it does. Responsible government exists in Canada anymore, with the with the power of the executive so so huge, and the abuses that the, a strong executive, especially majority government, can have in terms of undermining responsible government from omnibus bills to closure to to abuse of um, confidence motions, and ultimately even prorogation, as many people have said. Um, Are we moving actually back to something similar to how the Magna Carta started, l'état c'est moi? (laughs) Um, And is that something which we have to start worrying about in the second round? So maybe you can think about that when we get there. Rob, I'm afraid to actually ask you whether you think we are now in a state of l'état c'est moi. (laughs) Uh, Feel free to disabuse uh, that, that allegation.
5: Well, you talk about whether we're back to the time of King John. Uh, when those uh, prorogations happened, I was thinking we were back to the time of King Charles I. We <laughs> didn't have to go back to King John. As those of you who might not be familiar with English history, King Charles is fascinating how he would have trouble with Parliament, and he'd just dissolve it. You know, like, poof, you're gone. You're going to give me the money? Fine, shut you down. <laughs> and uh, when the prorogations came along, and toward the end of two what, eight and then nine, I guess it mm-hmm. was? You know, I just had this sense that, well, here's King Charles. He's just, I don't like what you're doing to me, so I'm going to shut you down. You know what I mean? Well, he didn't dissolve, he just prorogued it. But uh, the prorogations in those instances, in my view, are a reflection upon the, the, the prime minister as opposed to the power itself. Uh, but here's a, an area of prerogative powers which is, in a sense, outside the rule of law but part of our system of laws. it's it, These powers always were with the Crown. Even you go back to King John and all the terms they made with him, there wasn't one in there saying you won't prorogue mm-hmm. or dissolve Parliament without our consent. That came up many years later. There was a time in the 17th century when the parliamentarians wanted that to be the rule that there be no dissolution without their approval. And arguably a good case could be made now that that should be introduced in some manner. But. Uh, in this case here, the, the key that's enabling this to happen is, is outside the, the law, the rule of law, and that is the politics of uh, party discipline. And so, for so long as the Prime Minister has the support of the majority in the House, um, he can do these things with, with impunity, you might say, uh, because he enjoys the support of the House. We haven't lost responsible government. Responsible government, you may recall, is simply that which says the government is accountable to the House. And and in particular, when it first came in in 1848, the the Governor General will not exercise his powers except on the the advice of the ministry, which in turn is responsible to the the elected Legislative Assembly. We still have that, but the problem we have today is that we don't have in the ranks of the governing party uh, members who will hold the government to account outside of caucus. They may do some of this inside of caucus. That's a moot point, who knows. But outside of caucus, we don't see anything in the way of a restraint upon the government uh, by the uh, members of the uh, Prime Minister's political party. And frankly, it's not that one should expect to see that very often. It is in, in exceptional circumstances that it happens. It's happened in Australia, it's happened in Britain when the Margaret Thatcher's years, and it looks like it may be happening now in Manitoba in some respects but that's what the minister is not so much the caucus but we have responsible government the 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 machinery and the setup is there um it's just that the players are not particularly the players on the government side are not as loyal you might say to the principles of responsible government and their role in representing their constituents and representing the people as perhaps they should be but that's a political debate uh but yes are we back to the days of king john Well, King John and King Charles I, and who knows what the way that these prerogative powers, vis-a-vis Parliament, have been exercised.
2: Thank you. Uh,
6: My name's Adi, Adi Rao. I'm first-year common law. Um, My question is for uh, Mr. Robert Walsh. uh, And it's, uh, so just sort of drawing from current events and drawing from what you've just been talking about, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, members of Parliament and uh, the judiciary in the sense that Uh, Let's take Dean Del Mastro, who was quoted after having been convicted as saying about the judge that, well, it's just his opinion. I'm going to go appeal. Uh, And then now, today, we're seeing um, the minister for uh, immigration, uh, Mr. Alexander, trying to deal with the the recent order to to reinstate refugee health care. And over the past few hours, we've been seeing the changes or the, or the reversion to what it used to be, sort of roll out. But the problem is, uh, the minister sort of is kind of uh, bringing those changes back in in a way that may not necessarily actually amount to reinstating what previously existed, but just sort of you know putting in what he feels like might, might you know fly. Uh, in the meanwhile, and, and has said that he's also going to go ahead and appeal. So the, so the question I have is sort of this relationship between. Uh, a judge's ruling and and uh, and parliamentarians. Um, do you have any thoughts on it?
5: The the, um, the constitutional expert uh, Peter Hogg developed a notion of a dialogue between the courts and parliament. That uh, the, the the idea was that the courts would make a ruling. Well, that's their. Their intervention on the issue, and now Parliament can consider the issue and look at what the Court ruled and perhaps come to a different conclusion and legislate accordingly, and then that may end up back in the Court, and the Court will have its uh, response uh, if it's given an occasion to have one, and so on, and this dialogue goes forward. But more specifically, and and you mentioned the del Mastro uh, uh, matter just now, and you mentioned another case with which I'm not familiar, but generally speaking, it's open to the House to, or the government, to bring in proposals for legislation that may be designed to, in some manner, uh, get around a ruling of the court, or, or in effect nullify a ruling of the court. I mean, you know, the courts make their rulings, fine. And then Parliament, and particularly the House of Commons, has the option to legislate as it sees fit and run the risk that may get nowhere because it may end up getting rejected later once again in the court. But it's perfectly understandable they could do that. And Mr. Delmastro's comment about the judge, well, that's her opinion, well, you know, what can I say?
1: Thanks. Hello, uh, my name is Angela Arna Canitas. I was a former law student here, and I was also a former employee of the Department of Justice when Mr. Kotler was our minister. Um, I don't know if I have the perfectly framed question, but it will be short, and it's for Mr. Kotler. Um, What place do you see um, in the rule of law for the continuing use of the royal prerogative of mercy, which is in the criminal code?
4: That wasn't
2: one of his seven principles, so he's going to
4: have to think about it. No, No, well, one of the things that uh, I did uh, end up engaging in, um, which is, if you will, not so much mercy, but uh, it is mercy in in its consequence, but it's more an issue of justice, and that had to do with uh, wrongful convictions. Uh, Again, this is something that I did not anticipate before I became uh, Minister of Justice you know uh, I learned about the Truscott case as a law student as a case of capital punishment. Uh, We never learned about it as a case of uh, wrongful uh, conviction. Uh, Then afterwards the power was vested in the uh, Minister of Justice that where there was uh, prima facie uh, evidence of a miscarriage of justice then the uh, Minister of, of Justice uh, had the uh, authority at that point uh, to either quash the, con- uh, <coughs> uh, the uh, conviction, and uh, well, it was two things. One was he could send it to the quash the, the conviction and order a new trial, or send it to uh, uh, the Court of Appeal for a fresh hearing on the merits. Now. In the Trescott case, I knew that if I quashed the conviction, there would be no new trial because the Attorney General of Ontario had said uh, that he would not proceed. Uh, so I then went to the next uh, option, which was to, uh, in fact, refer the matter to the Ontario Court of Appeal for a fresh hearing on the merits, uh, which is what then ensued. And uh, Truscott was, as a result of, of that uh, hearing, Um, acquitted the question of mercy was not something that ever Mm
2: -hmm.
4: arose the only way these issues arose for me were issues in terms of uh, wrongful uh, conviction so I would have to take a look again at the royal prerogative of mercy because never the issue did not arise while I was there on that point
2: thank you
7: Hi, my question is probably best suited for uh, Mr. Walsh or Mr. Kotler. My name is Reem. I'm a third-year law student here at the University of Ottawa. I've been sort of perplexed by the interplay between judicial discretion and the royal prerogative and how the two clash. Lately, we've seen a lot of, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the term fettering, but perhaps Uh, crossing into the Rubicon of judicial discretion through legislative authority, through amendments to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, particularly uh, the Citizenship Act with respect to how judicial review is arranged and how judicial review is allotted and and limited. So My question to either Mr. Collar or Mr. Walsh is, how are we to deal as future attorneys and as attorneys in this room today with that clash between judicial discretion or with that, that encroachment, so to speak, is it an encroachment in and of itself on the separation of powers between the executive and the judiciary? Uh, is it something that we need to flag as, uh, as an issue going forward? Uh, perhaps not just in, in the context of immigration and refugee law, but uh, in other contexts where judicial review is, uh, is limited or judicial discretion is limited.
2: Actually, before you answer that question, I'm going to ask my colleague uh, Jennifer Bond to also ask the questions, because I highly suspect that her question is actually going to be on the same wavelength. So, um, And perhaps the entire panel can answer the, these questions, because I think, David, you also have a role to play in answering the, this, the first question, too. Uh, thank you. Actually.
8: Um, I hate to bring up immigration and refugee law again, but it is uh, a day, as uh, Addie mentioned, where it's on the minds of many of us because uh, we've attempted, and by we, I, I speak on behalf of the um, advocacy community uh, who's working um, to deal with refugee health cuts, to deal with the court process as a mechanism of um, engaging the rule of law. Uh, we were successful in court. Um, we were successful uh, in defeating a stay application and today at midnight is the deadline for the government to restore um, health care to all categories of refugee claimants in this country pending the outcome of an appeal. And I was actually going to address my question to Natalie, but I certainly ma- uh, welcome mm-hmm. reflections from any of the panelists. Um, we have since heard from the minister just within the last few hours that they will not be complying with the order of the court. Um, uh, and subsequently from their failed stay application, they will be partially restoring uh, refugee health benefits, but not fully restoring them. So I guess my question is, in, in a time when we're attempting to use more traditional legal mechanisms to enforce uh, constraints on power, uh, given the responses that we're seeing, do you have any reflections on how the rule of law might be enforced outside the courtroom and, and what, that might, what that might look like? And I certainly welcome comments by any of the panelists, but, I, but I'm in particularly interested in
3: Natalie's comments. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, I think uh, uh, the rule of law says if we have a dialogue, it cannot become a monologue so uh, in a way but the price will be political that's why i thought you know you cannot you have to also give the indifferent and the civil society the uh, the power to say that's wrong you know uh, you know it's we we cannot have a uh, disregard for uh, uh, the rule of law and disregard for a judge's opinion. and you know, we'll see uh, how they finesse this and you know let's hear about tomorrow morning how they, how they manage this. But I think fundamentally that's about this. Uh, all societies should care. Uh, if it's wrong, then find the proper processes. If you think it's wrong, find the pro- pro- proper processes to, to debate this. but to say, well, you know uh, it's just an opinion, and, but it's, a, it's the, so I, I think that's, that's the core, you know, is to, to ensure that within the government, within uh, uh, general people, people are, are say it's a high price to pay to disregard the rule of law. And it's incumbent on all of us to make that voice heard. It's
2: ironic that government is performing civil disobedience, but anyway. Erwin? Mm-hmm. Um,
4: mm-hmm. I, I just uh, to connect to something that Natalie Said before and, and now, and the questions, you know, but the whole issue of, of, of access uh, to justice and relating to uh, disadvantaged groups and refugees uh, being a, um, amongst them, it, it goes right back really to, to priorities and, and, and principles. How does a government frame its priorities and principles? And, uh, you know, one of them that I did not have a chance to mention and amongst the seven, but it relates in this way both to. And views in the comments, and that is I, one of the principles that we tried to establish as a government that the test of a just society is how does the government treat the, the disadvantage amongst it? How does it treat its most vulnerable? whether it be uh, children the most vulnerable, the vo- vulnerable, whether it be uh, women violated women, whether it be uh, refugees, whether it be Aboriginals, etc. And we sought to have this notion and certainly as Minister of Justice for me. This was a a Grundnorm uh, principle. And uh, on all these issues, on the matter of children, uh, the first piece of legislation I introduced was protection of children and other vulnerable persons. In the matter of women, the first piece of legislation I introduced was with regard to trafficking in in persons. With regard to refugees, uh, (coughs) I worked together with uh, two uh, ministers of of, uh, immigration where our approach was, how can we Protect refugees, and how can we grant them the proper access under the law uh, to the uh, <coughs> benefits and services, etc., that we felt uh, refugees would be in, entitled to? And uh, as I say, there are two ways to approach it. You can approach the whole question of, of refugees and say, We're going to designate Countries as safe countries, there are no refugees from that country, or you can go ahead and designate certain places as being refugee producing countries and therefore uh, have a predisposition for getting, uh, conferring refugee status and then the services that follow. And the same thing with with the Aboriginal. So uh, for me, it came back to what is the government's priorities, what is its governing philosophy in its relationship to the people, to the institutions of government? How does it relate to parliament? How does it relate to the courts? How does it relate to civil uh, society? All that comes together. And in all these questions, uh, you can see a distinguishable approach between the present government and the previous government or other governments in a manner in which they would relate to all the institutions of governance, including civil society.
2: Thank you.
5: And last, uh, Rob? I do think, though, that if, going back to judicial discretion and legislative initiatives to try and uh, limit that discretion, well, legislation can define the terms of any uh, uh, right or entitlement under the legislation, and that, and that can have the effect of, of constraining the courts in its uh, application of the statute. But of course, it runs up against, ultimately, the provisions of the Constitution, in particular the Charter, and if the legislation is trying to somehow deny the exercise of judicial discretion, Relative to the Charter, well, it won't work um, I mean, because the Charter's constitutional and these, these legislative pieces of legislation are just uh, just that ordinary legislation
2: I'd like to thank our distinguished panel for doing a great job here.
3: This is the Law School Show.